Take your Bible, if you would, and join me in the book of Hosea. Hosea, chapter number 14. Now, if you're a little nervous about the book of Hosea, then find Isaiah and then turn right. Okay, so Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Daniel, Ezekiel, Hosea. If you get to Matthew, you've gone a little too far, okay? So Hosea chapter number 14, in just a moment we'll look at that passage. And while you're turning, a little bit of personal information, you may be, and certainly there's nothing wrong with this if you are, but I am not a golfer. And I know a lot of pastors who love to golf and they're, they're, they're good at it, and some of them only think they're good at it, but I'm not a golfer. In fact, I'm a golfer if there's something like a windmill and a dinosaur head to putt through, you know, so then I'm, I'm okay at golf, but I'm not really a golfer. Now, I have, I have golfed before, but it's been a long time since I've actually been out on a golf course, and years ago, I was golfing with my family. My dad, my two brothers, and, and we're out golfing, and my brother, Terry, is teeing up to, to strike and drive the ball. So he's standing there, and, and um, Terry loves to golf, and, and so he's out there, and he's you know, has the pose and the, the wood and the club and you know, the whole deal, and, and I'm standing directly behind him. And so Terry gets back, and he brings that thing back, and he just strikes that ball. Well, it hit what is called the heel of the, the club, and while he's standing there, and I'm right behind him, that ball came directly toward my head. It went through his legs, straight back to where I'm standing, right at my head. And some of you are thinking, now that explains a lot, okay? So, but it didn't actually hit me. I mean, it, within inches, I just like, oh, I got out of the way and that ball went flying by me. And of course, you know, I'm looking at him. He's like, hey, sorry. And then if you're a true golfer, this is your next little statement. I'll take a mulligan. <laughs> And you put a ball down and you strike it again. Now, how many of you know what a, a golf, the term mulligan is in golf? How many of you know what that is? How many of you have no clue? I've never heard of that before. It sounds like stew to me, all right? Okay, a lot of people have never heard the expression a mulligan, but if you're a golfer, a mulligan is unofficial, but they all do it. A mulligan is one of those things where you just say, now listen, that one didn't count, okay? I want to begin again. Now, my brother had already put a ball down. He'd already struck the ball. He began, but he wanted to begin again. You know, today's an interesting day, and, and we stand at the beginning of something for a lot of, of you. A lot of you are here today as students at Pensacola Christian College and you are about to begin dot 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 again. Most of you have already a semester under your belt and, and you've already begun. Some of you have a number of semesters under your belt and, and you're anticipating graduation this year. But for the time you will begin again. So I, I suspect that while, you know, college and beginning is a helpful illustration, it's more importantly a life principle. That all throughout Scripture, God has given us opportunities to begin again. 
That we have begun something and we, we endeavored something and we fell short, we failed. The, the wonderful beginning that God gives as an offer to all mankind because he did so love the world is this invitation, this offer of his gift of salvation. It is the true beginning of man's journey with God. If you've never begun that journey, that is a a journey you only begin once. But following salvation in the Christian life, it seems as if I need a number of new beginnings. A poet from days gone by wrote the words of a little child in school and he said, he came to my desk with a quivering lip, the lesson was done. Have you a new sheet for me, dear teacher? I've spoiled this one. I took a sheet all soiled and blotted and gave him a new one, all unspotted. And then into his tired heart, I cried, do better now, my child. I came to the throne with trembling heart. The day was done. Have you a new day for me, dear master? I've spoiled this one. He took my day all soiled and blotted and gave me a new one, all unspotted. And into my tired heart he cried, do better now, my child. Have you ever come to the Lord with a day and that day is done and you offer it to him and you say, Lord, I need a new opportunity. Or a week or a month or even the compilation of years and we come before God the Father and we offer this and we say Lord I need something that is new may I begin again throughout the history of God's people the people of Israel God has been revealing his nature and his character God is holy All of his attributes then are connected to his holiness. God is just. God is righteous. But God delights even in his holiness. God delights in mercy. He showed mercy to me. The prophets in both the Old and the New Testament, they they seem to declare that God not only is this God of holiness, but one who delights in mercy. There are basically three groups of prophets in the Old Testament that we see. We see these pre-exilic prophets, the pre-exile, before Israel was sent into exile because of their disobedience. We see this group of prophets. That's really the group that Hosea, the prophet we'll look at today is in. And then we see this, this in the middle of exile group of prophets. They're speaking because God is merciful to his people. And then we see this this other post-exilic, after the exile group of prophets. And what are they all doing? They continue to point the people back to the one that has the answer for their need. Your Bibles are open right now to Hosea chapter 14. And it's actually the last chapter in this powerful book written to the people of Israel. We're going to take a moment and and it's not long, it's a rather brief 
chapter of scripture but we're going to take a moment and read through this chapter because it is a wonderful summary of the entire book while it doesn't go into the the detail that the rest of the book does it gives us this wonderful picture of the book let's start in verse number one Hosea chapter 14 here the Bible records for us O Israel return unto the Lord thy God for thou hast fallen by thine iniquity Take with you words and turn to the Lord. Say unto him, take away all iniquity and receive us graciously. So will we render the calves of our lips. Asher shall not save us. We will not ride upon horses. Neither will we say any more to the work of our hands. Ye are our gods. For in thee the fatherless findeth mercy. I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely for mine anger is turned away from him. I will, this is God speaking. I will be as the dew unto Israel. He shall grow up as the lily and cast forth his roots as Lebanon. His branches shall spread forth and his beauty shall be as the olive tree and his smell as Lebanon. They that dwell under his shadow shall return. They shall revive as the corn, grow as the vine. The scent thereof shall be as the wine of Lebanon. Ephraim shall say, what have I to do any more with idols? I have heard him and observed him. I am like a green fir tree. From me is thy fruit found. Who is wise? And he shall understand these things. Prudent. And he shall know them. For the ways of the Lord are right. And the just shall walk in them but the transgressors shall fall therein the closing words of the prophet Isaiah in chapter 14 sound like the words of the the wise in Proverbs when he wrote in Proverbs 13 15 the way of transgressors is hard But it's not the way that God chose for his people. In fact, he continues to call them back to beginning again. When God made his covenant, his promise with Abraham, he did so in a way that that it was an irrevocable promise. This is a covenant that God actually made on both sides of the party. God fulfilling both aspects of the agreement so that not God on one side and not God on the other side would ever break this covenant. It's an irrevocable covenant. But it doesn't mean that God can't send judgment. It does mean that that the ultimate blessing of Israel is certain. One day she will have her king ruling from the throne of David. Until that day, The invitation that God has extended to Israel remains the same one he offered during Hosea's day, just prior to the Assyrian invasion. Again, we see that God is extending mercy. And that mercy is not only extended to people that would call themselves the the, the children of God, as in the nation of God, Israel. That is an extended invitation to people like you people like me let's take a look at this chapter and find out how do we begin again look again if you would and notice a personal invitation 
a personal invitation. All throughout scripture, we find the gracious, undeserved, freely offered invitation from God to return to him. Though God's people had abandoned him, God had not abandoned them. Notice the tenderness in the opening invitation of this chapter. Look again, verse number one. Oh, Israel, return unto the Lord thy God, for thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. It's as if God is saying, Israel, you've taken your folly to the very limits of experimentation. Now return to the true lover of your soul. The one who loves you and has always loved you and continues to send tokens of his love. It's, it's as if we, we see something from the very opening of the pages of Hosea that helps frame the rest of the book. Take your Bible, turn back to Hosea chapter 1. Now we'll be back in Hosea 14 in a moment, but look at Hosea chapter number 1. And notice what God is instructing Hosea to do. Now, now the first thing we notice, we won't take time to read all of this, but the first thing we notice is God directs Hosea to take a bride. And this bride is recognized as a harlot in Israel. And notice what he's to name his children. Verse number three, Hosea chapter one. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Deblaim, which conceived and bare him a son. And the Lord said unto him, call his name Jezreel, Jezreel. The the name Jezreel, it means God scatters, God scatters. So his first son becomes for us this picture of the children of Israel, those who had Israel, who had played the harlot. And now this first child that's conceived, God scatters. But look a little bit further. Look down at verse number six. And she conceived again and bare a daughter. And God said unto him, call her name Lorahama, for I will no more have mercy upon the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. The second child, Lorahama, this means not having mercy. This is his second child. First, Jezreel, God scatters. Second, Lorahama, there is no mercy. Read on, it, it, it continues. Look down at verse number eight. Now, when she had weaned Lorahama, she conceived and bare a son. Then said God, call his name Loami, for ye are not my people, and I will not be your God. Can you imagine if the book of Hosea ends here? Hey, call him Ami. What, is, what does this mean? Or call him Loami. It means not my people. This is a powerful picture. Can you imagine this one who had birthed a child that says, not my people, There are some who espouse the idea that that while this was noted with the birth of Jezreel and she bare him a son, for the next two children, it only says that his wife conceived. It doesn't say that, that she bare him. Now, only that she conceived. Quite possible that she again went and, and played the harlot and she again conceives. Not my people, no mercy, scattered, If this is where the book concludes, then the picture is quite dismal indeed. But notice as we, before we even finish the chapter, the mercy of God cannot be contained. Look at the end of chapter one, verse number 10. 
Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, ye are not my people, there it shall be said unto them, ye are the sons of the living God. Now, even before this chapter concludes, there is this message of reconciliation, this desire to be restored and one again. Look, when you read a little further, verse number 11, then shall the children of Judah and the children of Israel, listen to this, be gathered together. Well, Jezreel means scattered. Yes, but I'm going to restore, I'm going to bring you back again together and appoint themselves one head and they shall come up out of the land for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Now instead of Jezreel scattered, this is the nation that is gathered together. And remember, Lo Ruhama, no mercy. Do you remember that she is now this different name? Look at verse number one, chapter two. Say ye unto your brethren, Ami, and to your sisters, Ruhama, Lo Ruhama, no mercy, she is now Ruhama, which means deeply loved, receiving tender mercy. It means great affection. The, the, the one where no mercy, now my heart pours over with mercy. And then say unto your brethren, Ami, you remember, Lo Ami, not my people. He is now Ami, which means my people, my kindred, my nation. From the very beginning of this book, when God is calling Israel to, to come to him, he does so in tones of judgment. But before the, the book barely takes off, you see once again the merciful longing tones of a loving, patient, long-suffering God. This is God's personal invitation to his people. And because God is immutable, which means he is the changeless one. It also means that he's not only prepared to show judgment, but eager to show mercy. To allow us to begin again. So how do we do this? How do we begin again? I know we have this personal invitation, but now he starts to give us instruction. Back again to Hosea chapter 14. Hosea chapter 14. The first thing that we see, this personal invitation, but now we see this prayerful invocation. An invocation, an invocation simply stated is a prayer asking for help. It's coming to one who has the authority to do so. I invoke you to. The next thing we see is this prayerful invocation. Hosea calls the nation to reject all other means of survival. Turn to the one that could rescue and restore. And the prophet even phrases the prayer for Israel to, to offer this prayerful invocation. Look, look with me at chapter 14, verse number 2. In fact, if you want to write something in the margin of your Bible, look at how this begins. He says, take with you words. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying, pray to God. Take with you words. Hey, hey, here's some words you could offer to God. Now they have to come from more than your mouth. They have to come from your heart, but take with you words. Here's a prayer you could offer. And what's that prayer look like? Take with you words and turn to the Lord and say unto him, take away all iniquity and receive us graciously. So will we render the calves of our lips. This is the sacrifice of our lips. 
Asher shall not save us. We will not ride upon horses. Neither will we say any more to the work of our hands. Ye are our gods. For in thee, in you, God, the fatherless findeth mercy. Hosea offers this prayer as an example for the people of Israel. This is a denunciation of all other gods, all other reliances. God, I know I've relied on this and this and this. And Lord, sometimes that this included this. I was relying on me. I denounce all other lesser gods. I'm coming exclusively to you. It, it is, um, it's that which kind of hearkens unto us, this Deuteronomy 4.39. Know therefore this day and consider it in thine heart that the Lord is, he is God in heaven alone and upon the earth beneath there is none else. God, I'm coming to you exclusively. In Psalm 51.17, it's recorded this way. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, thou wilt not despise. E. Stanley Jones was a missionary of days gone by. He, he served for many years as, as pastor, evangelist, but missionary specifically uh, to the people of India. This is what E. Stanley Jones wrote. Prayer, this prayerful invocation, prayer is surrender. Surrender to the will of God and cooperation with that will. If I throw out an anchor, he said, if I throw out an anchor from the boat and catch hold of the shore and pull, do I pull the shore to me or do I pull myself to the shore? Prayer is not pulling God to my will, but the aligning of my will to the will of God. This is a prayerful invocation. It's not saying, hey God, hey God, here, here let me toss this out to you and I'm trying to pull you to my way of thinking. How our culture today is trying to pull the shore to the boat and say, God, you approve of my way, which God never does. But God so graciously invites us to throw out our anchor to the shore and pull ourselves to the shoreline of his mercy. Abraham Lincoln once said, I have been driven many times to my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I had nowhere else to go. This prayerful invocation, this, this return to beginning again starts with a turn to God and a prayerful, simple, humble plea. Well, we see this personal invitation, a prayerful invocation, but notice what God attaches to this. And that is a promise of restoration. This promise of restoration. Look again at your Bible. Look at verse number four. Hosea chapter 14, verse number four. And here God records this for us. He says, I will heal their backsliding. I love this little phrase. I will love them freely. For mine anger is turned away from him. Has there ever been anything other than a gracious reception when it concerns returning to the Lord. It's been said that we have been truly forgiven, truly forgiven another when we surrender our rights to get even. God over and over and over again could be completely justified in getting even. 
Yet God, in a manner befitting his graciousness and without a hint of vindictiveness, invites the wayward to return. There are two beautiful I will statements connected with this. Now, there are more I wills that God says, I will, I will, I will. But notice these two. The first thing he says is, I will heal their backsliding. The word heal means exactly what you'd think it means. It just means I'm going to return you to a healthy position. You've not been healthy. You're struggling and and there's so much emotional weight. There's spiritual angst. There's, There's even physical indications. But he said, I want to return you to a place of, of sustained health. He said, I'm I'm going to heal you. And then notice what else he says: I will love them freely. Freely. It means voluntarily, it means under no compulsion. Did you ever have to love someone before? By love, serve one another. And and sometimes we get to that point where, well, listen, have you ever even said the words, I love you, but I do not like you, okay? This is not the idea that we get with God when he says, I will love them freely. He says, there's something spontaneous within me that I can't quench. I will love you with no compulsion. There's none that can twist the arm of God to to cause some love. There's nothing lovely in ourselves that causes him to love us. His love is uncaused. It is found exclusively in him. And he loves those that are unlovely. And he says, listen, I want you to know, I not only love you, but I love you freely. I'm not going to say, okay, I'm going to love you, but you have to promise to never do this again. Deal? I'll love you, but before we do this, let's have a little pre-love agreement. God just says, I'm going to heal your backsliding. And here's what I'm going to do. I so long to, to demonstrate the voluntary aspect of my love. All throughout the book of Hosea, Israel is seen as being spiritually apostate. These are those who have defected. They've denied their heritage. They've denied their God. Just as Hosea's wife abandoned her husband and children, Israel had fallen into a state of spiritual derangement. They're not even thinking clearly. And this is the condition of Israel when God says, I'll restore you. I will put you back again. And he doesn't say, I'll restore you, but these are the conditions following your restoration. He says, we'll take care of that then. I want you to return. I want you to continue to walk with me, but this is not the condition for beginning again. It's similar to when the prodigal returns to his father. The father who continually looks over the little knoll in the distance, hoping to see some person rise above it and walk down the trail. And and finally, he sees one absolutely in poverty, in rags, and, and comes humbly walking. Not the same stride when he had left some time ago. Not with the same presumption and the same arrogance with his back to his father, with his back to his father's standards, with his back to everything that the father stood for. Now he comes to face again the father. 
maybe he will have me as one of his hired servants. That's probably one of the conditions for him to have me again. And maybe as he sees me come, he'll say, okay, now sit down. Before you cross this line, we're going to have a little discussion. And here one who comes in the filth of the pig pen finds that there is no hesitation on the part of the father. But as soon as the father discerns who it is that crests that little knoll, as soon as he sees him, the father runs and he falls upon him and he kisses this one who comes in his filth. And the father comes with all the picture, the demonstration of his provision, his power, who he is. And yet he loves him freely. And the boy's overwhelmed by this, but he's rehearsed his lines. Uh, uh, Father, uh, uh, maybe I, I could come as one of your servants. And before he gets it out, he says, quiet, my son. And there are tears flowing down his face. And he, and he calls to one of his servants. He says, hurry, my son needs a robe. Bring the ring, new shoes for his feet. And, and will we have a meal tonight? He loved him freely. And for the one who had apostated themselves from the lover of their soul, God again says, would you like a new beginning? They say, well, we've had one of those already. I know, but would you like to begin again? We see this personal invitation, this, this personal invitation, this prayerful invocation, this promise of restoration. And then as we conclude, this picture of revitalization. Look again, verse number five, chapter 14. I will be, here's what he's offering to Israel who was absolutely bankrupt. I will be as the dew unto Israel. He shall grow as the lily, cast forth his roots as Lebanon. His branches shall spread. His beauty shall be as the olive tree and his smell as Lebanon. They that dwell under the shadow shall return they shall revive as the corn grow as the vine the scent thereof shall be as the wine of Lebanon Ephraim shall say what have I to do any more with idols I have heard him and observed him I am like a green fir tree from me is thy fruit found Again, all throughout the book of Hosea, it uses pictures to illustrate what will happen to Israel. Most of those pictures were hard to look at. Yet the picture presented here can be gazed upon over and over again. Have you ever looked at something and the first time you saw it, it was beautiful, but the second time its beauty was some diminished? I don't mean, and I'm not intending this to be unkind or even silly for that matter. But have you ever been struck by a person's beauty until you got to know them? And their beauty began to diminish. Have you ever seen something that you thought, oh, that's, that's wonderful. I could look at that for hours. But, but the more you do, the, the less beautiful it becomes. But not the picture that God paints. There is something about this that, that I look at it and I am immediately intrigued by its beauty. I'm immediately captivated by that which it appears to offer. And, and I go away from that and I think about it and I come and I gaze upon it again. And, 
It seems to be more beautiful than the, than the time I gazed before. And, and the more I look upon it, the more enraptured I become with, with that which seems to allure me to itself. This is an accurate picture of who God truly is. The more you gaze upon him as he truly is, the more beautiful he becomes. And he starts to present these pictures over and over again to Israel, one after another after another. And as they look at this, they they compare these pictures of God to the reality of their life. And it is a stark contrast. And they begin to look with, with maybe first this intrigue of its beauty, but The more they gaze, the more they desire. Remember the word revive. It means to restore to normal. To bring to life. Bring it back to a place where it once was. Look at all that God is offering himself as the dew in Israel. It signifies the return of his favor. In fact, dew in Israel was so absolutely necessary for the life of of the vegetation it had to come in in fact there are times when they said the dew was so thick it would almost roll over the ground and now God says "I, I want to roll over you with this dew of my mercy he goes on and he says he shall grow as the lily he says let me make you beautiful again let me restore to you the, 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 the beauty that you once had. Let, let me bring back again that which the ashes now have formed. But I can take the ashes and make beauty from those ashes. Because I'm going to be to you like the lily, something of restored beauty. I'm gonna, you're going to cast forth your roots as Lebanon. Deep roots that signify stability and strength. Not the, not the tumbleweed that blows across the prairie. His branches shall spread forth. This speaks of prosperity. And it just goes on and on. Verse number seven. They shall revive as the corn, grow as the vine. The scent thereof shall be as the wine of Lebanon. Everything he begins to paint, it hearkens to the beauty that we see of of the groom to the bride in the Song of Solomon. When he says in the song, chapter 4, verse 7, Thou art all fair, my love. There is no spot in thee. He says, I want to make you something completely new. And I want you to be as you truly are. This is God's desire for me. It is God's desire for you. In Jeremiah, again, these pictures are everywhere in scripture. In Jeremiah, he illustrated it this way. It's chapter 18 and he begins in verse number three and he says, then I went down to the potter's house and behold, he wrought a work on the wheels and the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So... He did what potters do. So he made it again another vessel as seemed good to the potter to make it. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter, saith the Lord? Behold, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are ye in mine hand, O house of Israel. So we offer ourselves as clay to the potter. And we simply say, begin again.
This passage concludes with a concise summary of God, his ways, his dealings with mankind. And he asks somewhat of a rhetorical question. He said, who is wise? He shall understand these things. Prudent, he shall know them. For the ways of the Lord are right and the just shall walk in them. But the transgressors shall fall therein. The ways of the Lord are navigable by the wise. But the same way becomes a source of stumbling to the transgressor. May God grant that those who would be counted as wise walk in the way. I I have quoted poems for a lot of years and I suspect this one may be the one I have maybe referred to most often. I see one who pictures himself in the poem as standing at the gate. I wish that there were some wonderful place called the land of beginning again, where all our mistakes and all our heartaches and all of our poor selfish grief could be dropped like a shabby old coat at the door and never be put on again. I wish we could come on it all unaware like a hunter who finds a lost trail. And I wish that the one whom our blindness had done, the greatest injustice of all, could be at the gates like an old friend that waits for the comrade he's gladdest to hail. There is one who waits at the gate. He is the one we have done the greatest injustice of all. And he invites us to a special place called the land of beginning again.